Welcome to Banyan Books, Branches of Wisdom. Celebrating the joy of bright ideas and heartful lifelong learning. Branches of Wisdom is a series of intimate conversations with the world's most influential authors and visionaries. We explore spirituality and the human mind, ecology and culture. Most episodes are recorded with a live audience. You can join our live events and submit questions to your favorite guests. Check out our upcoming schedule at banyan.com. Since 1970, Banyan Books has been a rich oasis at the crossroads of wisdom and philosophy, offering resources for humanity's evolving paths. We're a locally owned independent bookstore in the heart of Vancouver's Kitsilano neighborhood. Visit us in person or shop online at banyan.com. Please subscribe follow, like, and leave your reviews for the podcast. And now, enjoy. Hello and welcome. Uh, My name is Jacob Steele, the events manager for Banyan Books. Today we are delighted to be hosting Robert Mack, discussing his new book, Love from the Inside Out. Robert Mack is an Ivy League educated positive psychology expert, celebrity happiness coach, executive coach, and published author. Robert studied under the direction of Martin Seligman, the founder of positive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. Robert is one of the world's leading experts on the relationship between happiness and success. He helps individuals and organizations achieve an energizing balance of authentic personal happiness and effortless professional success based on time-tested science and timeless spiritual wisdom. Robert's work has been endorsed by Oprah, Vanessa Williams, and many others. Uh, He's been seen on Good Morning America, The Today Show, Access Hollywood, Health, Cosmopolitan, Glamour, many other um, publications and shows. Uh, He's the author of Happiness from the Inside Out, and his new best-selling book, which he will be speaking on today, is Love from the Inside Out, Lessons and Inspiration for Loving Yourself, Your Life, and Each Other. Uh, In this book, Robert shares a fresh new perspective on the meaning of true love. He explores the frustration and futility of seeking love from others instead of yourself and in the future instead of the present. He weaves together time-tested scientific findings with timeless transcendental wisdom. And you can find out more about uh, Robert's work at coachrobmack.com. That's coachrobmack.com. And now, without further ado, please give a warm Banyan welcome to Robert Mack. Thank you so much, Jacob. That was amazing. I so appreciate being being here and so appreciate you having me. Uh, So today I want to talk a little bit, of course, about love from the inside out. But I want to talk about why I wrote the book and really what the sort of point and the purpose of the book is. So the question I want to start with is, why are you here? Right? And I don't mean here at this live streaming event uh, with Banyan Books. We know that those good folks and Jacob and I sort of dragged you here screaming and kicking. But why are you here on this planet, on this earth? That was a question that drove me nuts. I mean, absolutely insane. It drove my mom nuts, probably my dad nuts, and both my sibling nuts um, since I was a very small child. I was obsessed with this question of why am I here on the planet? For what reason? For what point? What purpose? What meaning? And so. As time went on, that question did not leave me alone. And I continued to ask that question along with many others, to my mom, to other parents, to teachers. And as I continued driving everybody else nuts, I drove myself just as nuts with the question. In fact, I became so crazy and so obsessed with that question that I was eventually led to experiencing more and more suicidal ideation, right? So this existential angst and anxiety grew and grew. And these feelings of sort of self-loathing and anxiety and stress that I experienced as a small child really just grew and grew over time. And despite doing well in school, I was salutatorian of my high school class, despite doing well academically, despite doing well athletically, uh, despite doing, you know, okay socially, I didn't have a whole lot of friends. I was also most shy of my high school class. I eventually found that my depression kept becoming deeper and deeper. And I got to a place where I was seriously suicidal. And so I began to experience uh, suicidal thoughts 
dozens and dozens of times a day. I thought about killing myself more than I thought about anything or anyone else. And I eventually got to a place where I decided I was going to do something about it. So I did a little research and decided I was going to slash my wrist. And so went to the kitchen, got a kitchen knife and dug it into my wrist. Still have the suicide test marks uh, to this day. And strangely enough, without anything in my external conditions or circumstances changing, remember, I had a pretty good life at the time. I mean, I had some friends. I had a beautiful girlfriend at the time. I had a great job. Uh, I had two beautiful German cars. All the things that you really hoped to achieve and accomplish, acquire um, when you're young. I felt like I had most of it, and yet I was deeply depressed. And so without anything changing in my external conditions, as I rammed this knife into my wrist, I had the most inexplicable, unexpected, ineffable experience I'd ever had. For no good reason, without anything changing, I felt this deep peace and happiness and limitless love, the kind of love that you feel has always been there and yet at the same time could never go away, the kind of love that washes over you entirely, that allows you to feel a deep peace and safety and security. And, and at the time, I didn't know how to make sense of that, right? That love and that peace and that joy that I felt, I didn't understand it at all. But I did know that I should probably postpone the suicide for like five or 10 minutes, which is what I did. So I postponed the suicide for like 10 minutes, which now is practically laughable. Then it was a very tall order. It felt like a really impossible that it would last the whole 10 minutes, but I did. And in that time, I started doing some research. I started studying happiness in particular. And as I began that study, those 10 minutes bled into, pardon the pun, several hours and several weeks. And now it's been over two decades. And I want to share what I learned in that experience. Usually I share what I've learned from that experience from the perspective of happiness, right? So I'm a happiness coach, a positive psychology expert. And so really my sweet spot is happiness. But I want to share today really what I learned about love, both in that experience and also through the last 20 or so years of working as a love coach and dating coach, which is surprising and strange to me because I never set out to do that. You know, I'd already set out to really just be happy myself. And I had planned that, you know, if I did that, that other things would work their, themselves out. And even if they didn't, I was happy. And that's the point and purpose of it, you know, all anyway, right? So in this sort of path and journey, as I became happier and happier by applying every tip, trick, and tool that I could possibly apply after reading every book I could possibly read, including Marion Williamson and Eckhart Tolle and Abraham Hicks and Ramana Maharshi and Rupert Spira, and I mean all the folks, all the teachers, I couldn't, I could never get enough of those folks. After doing all that, I found my life was improving, you know, bit by bit and day by day, and I began to uh, grow a private practice. And in that private practice, I called myself a happiness coach, because I still consider myself a happiness coach. But strangely enough, most people called me because they were struggling with relationship problems. So I assume that, you know, when I put up my website and said, hey, I'm a happiness coach, and I want to help people live happier lives. Um, and hopefully, as a result of those happier lives, you'll also live more successful lives, wealthier lives, healthier lives. We know that's all true based on decades of empirical data. I just assumed that people would call me and say, hey, Rob. I'm really unhappy, I'm really sad, I'm really miserable, I'm stressed out and anxious, can you please help me? That is not what happened. What happened instead was that most people called me said, you know, Rob, I've got a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a husband or a wife or many girlfriends or many boyfriends or both, and they just are making my life miserable. Or I have the lack thereof of those things or of those people, and that's making me miserable. And so I want you to fix those people, or I want you to fix those things or fix this situation. And I always found that so highly problematic. I understood it, but I was frustrated by it for a long time until I began to discover a few, I suppose, misconceptions, misperceptions, myths around happiness and love. And so I want to share some of what I learned today about love specifically and also how it relates to happiness. I think most of this won't be new for you, but it might be a new way of expressing it. Um, and you'll certainly feel, I think, an intuitive hit as I share some of these flawed premises, misconceptions, or myths around love, okay? The first thing that I sort of wanted to speak to right away is that, you know, love seems and feels and appears to be something that 
is very different from happiness, right? That it's something somehow is very different. And I discovered that as I was talking to people, uh, couples and single people, that we can almost reduce every single problem in our lives down, particularly every relationship problem down, to one problem. That problem is how do I define or describe love, right? So what is love, right? We all explain, understand, describe love in different ways without knowing it. So every relationship problem really comes down to and is reduced down to two people who have different understandings or appreciations or experiences of what it means when they say, I love you. So when you say, I love you, what do you mean by love, right? What do you mean by love? And what do you mean by I? And what do you mean by you, right? So as I began to explore this question myself, my own personal benefit, you know, and part of this was, of course, came, came on the heels of that suicidal experience, but it also came by virtue of having my own challenging relationships over the course of my life. And then, you know, sort of living vicariously through and with um, the experiences of my clients and friends and family members, I discovered that the very first challenge, opportunity, sort of myth around love is that love is what you think it is, right? But the truth is, at least in my experience, is that love is not what you think it is. So the suicidal experience that I had, for instance, I felt love despite not thinking any thoughts at all, right? Huge, mind-blowingly inspiring insight and revelation to have. Wasn't sure what exactly to do with it, but it took me about 20 years to come around to truly appreciating and understanding that when I was not thinking at all, when I was contemplating the end of my life and then came to the end of that contemplation and decided to do something about it, that in that moment that my mind went quiet, it was cool, calm, composed, and I was essentially existing in a state of no mind, which I will call divine mind, that I experienced this all-pervasive love, peace, and happiness that transcended thoughts. So it's not that it couldn't include thoughts, but it transcended thoughts. And this peace, love, and this happiness was not something I was thinking, right? It was something I was feeling despite not thinking much or anything at all. And so the first clue for me there is that love is not what I think. Love is not what you think. Love is not what anybody thinks it is. Love is not what happens when you think. Love is what already is underneath all your thoughts about what love is. Love is what already is underneath all your thoughts about everything and anything that does or does not exist in the world, right? So love is what you feel when you stop thinking about love, your, lo your love life, or your lack thereof, right? So it's this ever-present reality that is the very ground of being, right? And so that's the first sort of myth um, that I had to bust for myself. Um, if there's one thing that I'm clear about in these kinds of conversations, it's that um, every little insight that I share is always genuinely and primarily and firstly meant for me, right? So the first was, love is not what you think. In fact, love is not what anybody thinks. Love is what you feel when you don't think right? That you're already feeling or already sort of existing in and as when you're thinking, but that you feel sometimes more palpably, more deeply, more profoundly when you're not thinking at all, right? So second sort of insight or revelation that I sort of had, and then I sort of share in the book, is that love is life felt. Love is life felt. In other words, love is life embraced. Love is felt oneness with life right? So we don't have a life. We are life, right? We don't have consciousness. We are consciousness. That life, that consciousness, that awareness, when you feel in to your oneness with that, we'll call it love. That's what I call love, right? Love is just the self felt. It's just the self embraced, the self with a capital S, your true self, right? Your divine self, your spiritual self. Love is felt not oneness with the self, the same self that is the self of me and you and everybody and everything else in the world, right? That felt oneness is love. Another way of saying it is that love is God felt, right? Love is God embraced. Love is love. Love is felt oneness with God, right? And so it's not that we, that love is something that we do. Love is something that we are. We are love. You are love full stop, right? Because you are life and life is always one. It's just really exist as one, right? So the true you is nothing but love. It's nothing but life or nothing but uh, light as well. Right, so that's the second sort of insight I wanted to share was that love is life felt, right? It's that felt oneness with life. Third, 
love is not a relationship. And I think this is one of the probably most exciting, I think, insights around relations, at least for me personally, especially because I'm single. So maybe it's a bit of confirmation bias. Who knows? But I will say that love is not a relationship, right? So most of us think, maybe probably not most of us here in this audience, I think we've mostly been disabused of this idea. But we think of love as being a relationship, that it's a relationship status or it's a state of relationship. But love is not an exclusive relationship that we have with one person. Love is an inclusive way of relating to everybody in the entire world, right? So it's not an exclusive relationship with one person. It's an inclusive way of relating to everybody and everything in the whole world. And so love is really this unaddressed love letter to the entire universe, to sort of life itself, right? Now that's a difficult concept, I think, for lots of people to get their head around, not for folks here, but we want to kind of keep that in mind. The fourth insight is that love is not only not a relationship, it's also not an emotion. It's not a state of mood. It's not an emotional state, right? It's not a state of emotion. Love is what is underneath, above, below, beyond, and between all of your emotions, right? So love is what is underneath all of your emotions, it includes all of your emotions, but it's not in and of itself an emotion. It doesn't mean you don't experience it occasionally as an emotion, but it's something that is um, deeper than that, more profound than that, more basic than that, um, and this is certainly uh, sort of more um, all-pervasive, infinite, eternal, thoughtless, wordless sort of reality or ground of your being, right? So it's not a state of mood. Also, back to the original point, love is also not a state of mind, right? So it's helpful, of course, to have loving thoughts. I'm all for loving thoughts. Definitely prefer loving thoughts to unloving thoughts. But love, the kind of love that I'm talking about, which is not a love that comes and goes. It doesn't sort of visit, stay for a while, and then leave. I'm talking about the love that's always there underneath, above, below, beyond, between all your thoughts, emotions, perceptions, sensations, activities, conditions, circumstances, and people in your life, right? That context, that ground of being that is always there, that we're only occasionally aware of, is what we'll call love, right? And we know that and we feel that when we finally tune into it, right? And so love doesn't come and go. Only our awareness of love comes and goes. And so love always is. In fact, only love really is, right? Only life really is. Another word for love is really life or felt oneness with life. So only life really is, and therefore only love really is. And so love is not the guest. We sometimes think of love as being a guest that comes and visits and then leaves. Love is the host, right? Love is the host. So love doesn't visit, stay for a while, and then leave. Love moves in and makes itself at home, right? So it always has its home in you and in me, and love always has its home as you and my, me, right? So again, another way of saying that is that life always has its home in you. Life always has its home as you, right? This felt oneness with life. And so it's a good reminder, I think, because for so often and much in my life, I assumed, like most of us, that love, like happiness, was something that I would find outside of myself in the world, in other people, places, things, or activities. Um, and I would always find in the future or the past and never quite the present, right? And we know, at least I know, and I think all of us here know, both intuitively and uh, experientially, right, that love is something we have felt when we have been surrounded but by nothing but unloving conditions, circumstances, and or people, at least seemingly unloving conditions, circumstances, and people. And um, lovelessness is something we've often felt when we've been surrounded by nothing but loving people, conditions, and circumstances, right? And so love is something that does not depend or is not conditional on people, places, things, activities, conditions, or circumstances. It's something that you feel or don't feel based on whether or not you're aware of it or not, right? So it's an awareness, really. Love is awareness. So the other piece I want to share, and I think this one really resonates with me probably as deeply as anything, is that love is joy. Love is happiness. Love is your happiness shared. Love is bliss overflowing. Your bliss overflowing right and so love and happiness aren't two different coins they're two different sides of the same coin they're not two different phenomenons or phenomena they're two different perceptions of the same phenomenon they're not two different energies it's the same energy perceived or looked at in two different ways right so love really is happiness and happiness really is love right and so 
the way I explain it is this, is that when you're happy in your aloneness, call it happiness, right? When you're happy in your togetherness, we call it love. So in other words, when you're happy and you're all alone and you're introverted that particular day or that particular moment, we'll call it happiness. When you're happiness and you share that happiness with others and you're extroverted, you're outgoing that particular day, that particular moment, we'll call that happiness love, right? So love is your happiness, your joy, and your peaceful aliveness shared with the world, right? And so it's a good thing to think to remember because love, like happiness, has often got a bad rap, right? We often think about love as something that is full of pain, that is full of suffering, that is full of sacrifice. And I would argue that um, love is not full of pain, love is not full of suffering, and love is not full of ego. In fact, I'd argue that all of those things are an indication that you're really um, coming from a place of ego instead of love, right? If you're coming from love, love um, is happy and it's joyful and it's peaceful and it's free. And anything less than that would be what we might call pseudo love, right? It wouldn't be the kind of love that we're talking about here, real love, or we'll call it divine love or spiritual love, but the kind of love that is um, uh, omnipresent, right? Another way of saying what I just said is that love is your self-love shared, right? So I often joke and say, you know, the best love is self-love. We've all heard that before. I think that's true. I'd say the greatest love is self-love. And self-love leads to other forms of love, right? Now, I'd say there's only really one kind of formless love, but love does take different forms, right? It could be romantic love or platonic love, or it could be familial love, or it could be, you know, um, professional love or spiritual love, right? Agape. But in any case, love is your self-love shared. And so when you love yourself, you automatically love other people. We know that, right? When you're loving yourself, everybody else is so easy to get along with. Also, when you love yourself, you're so much easier to get along with, right? It's also why I call it happiness. Because when you're happy, you automatically love other people. You don't have to be reminded or told to love other people. You do it automatically and effortlessly. It doesn't always look the same. It doesn't need to look in any like anything in any particular, right? When you stop judging yourself, you automatically stop judging others. That's the other way to say it, right? And so one great metaphor that I love using and sharing is uh, this metaphor of a rain cloud. So I like to think and I like to be a rain cloud. And I like the idea of us all being rain clouds, right? So a rain cloud basically fills itself out with so much moisture. We want to fill ourselves up with so much peace and love and joy, so much self-love and peace and joy that we get to a place where we can't contain it any longer. We can't hold on to it any longer. We have to literally share it with the world. We have to relieve ourselves of this burden of being so filled up and so full of peace, love, and joy that we can't contain it. We simply shower down all of that peace, love, and joy indiscriminately on the entire earth and everybody and everything on that earth without an expectation of reciprocity, without any quid pro quo, without any strings attached, without any expectation of reward at all, right? That's what I call love. It's your bliss overflowing. It's your happiness shared. It's your self-love shared, right? It's the overflow, right? And that's what we call the abundant life, right? And so the key really, that I'm sharing here, again, not, no, no, not new, this is not a hot take, right? But it's, a, but, but it's a, an expression of my experience um, of love, is that we are essentially um, the source of love. And so love is never found, right? Because it's never lost, right? It's never found, so therefore it can't be lost. Love is not found, it's freed, right? We're the source of love, ultimately. And so even that isn't true, that it's freed. Love is not freed. Love is free, right? So we could say in one breath that love is free. It's something that we let go of or allow to be expressed through us, right? As a transparency, we're a transparency for that love. At the same breath, we can also say it's free, right? That it's never really held hostage. We can occasionally find it obscured or veiled, um, maybe slightly or softly concealed, um, but it's just an unveiling. It's just a revealing. It's just a freeing. Uh, even that's not accurate to describe it, right? And this is the challenge with really speaking about anything that's worth speaking about is that no words are ever adequate. No words um, can ever really describe or explain or certainly define. We only limit ourselves that way, but we got to do something while we're here, right? So love is not found. It's freed. It's not even really freed. It's free already. It's not discovered. It's rediscovered, right? So it's essentially who and what you ultimately are. It's not even really discovered. It's uncovered, right? It's not discovered. It's not like it's something new. It's something you know First and foremost, I mean, the naked awareness of your own being is love, 
right? The naked awareness of your own existence is love already. Is that I am that I am. That I am recognition already is the peace, love, and joy that we're ultimately after, that we ultimately seek, right? And yet, it's not something we seek, need to seek at all. In fact, our seeking leads us away from it, right? Our seeking leads us astray from it. So love is not something discovered. It's something that's uncovered. So it's simply an unveiling that takes place, right? And so ultimately, what we're here on this planet to do, and at least where I'm at now in my journey, is that it's not that we're here to get love. We're here to give it, right? We're not here to acquire love. We're here to express it, to extend it. And we're not even really here to give love. If I were to be completely accurate and honest with myself, I'd say, we're here to be love, right? And that just means being ourselves. Being love just means being yourself, right? It just means being the self. And what is that self? That self is this thoughtless, wordless, infinite, eternal, faceless, formless, peaceful aliveness that we all ultimately are. We'll call it life. It's life unedited. It's life uncensored. Not life conditions, not life circumstances. It's the non-physical energy, we can call it that, that exists not only within us, but as us, right? So it's not really about being loved. It's not really even about being loving. It's about being love, being the source of love, right? So again, let me say that again, just so I can hear myself say it to make sure I said it clearly. It's not about being loved. It's not even about being loving. It's about being love, being the source of love, and then letting that love show up in whatever form and fashion that it wants that it dictates right and so again then every relationship problem in our lives ultimately doesn't matter if it's platonic or professional romantic every relationship problem is really just one problem and it's looking outside ourselves for what only exists within it's looking for love where it doesn't live where it doesn't exist and so it's looking for love in the world instead of ourself the capital s we call it god right because it's life it's love and so it's looking for love at all, really, that's ultimately the challenge and the opportunity for all of us, instead of being the love that we ultimately are, right? Instead of being in love with and being in love as the all, right? So it's not looking for love at all. It's being the love that is the all, that is God, that is the self, right? So every relationship problem then is just one. Really, every problem in the world ultimately is just one. And it's looking or depending on others to feel love or feel loved. Another way to say that is looking or depending on or making contingent your experience of love or happiness or peace on anything or anybody else in the world, right? And so it's depending on others to feel loved, to feel love, depending, depending on others to feel happy or to feel happiness, right? And so ultimately, finally then, love is not achieved, accomplished, or acquired Love is not reached, it's recognized, it's simply realized. It's not what we do, it's what we ultimately are. We know that best when we're not lost in discursive thought. When we're tapped in, tuned in, turned on to that thoughtless, wordless, faceless, formless, infinite, eternal presence that we ultimately are. You can call it God, you can call it source, you can call it life. Best if you not call it anything at all, call love. When you're tapped in, tuned in, turned on to that, which you always are, but you're aware that you're tapped in, tuned in, turned on to that, you already are existing as the love that you intrinsically and inherently and innately are, right? And then it shows up in all kinds of different ways, right? you know, sort of forms and fashions, right? So the last thing I'll say, and then I wanna open up for questions a little bit, is that from my very unique perspective, right? And also not unique at all, love is the whole meaning and purpose of life. It's the whole end and aim of human existence. We've heard that quote before and usually it's shared around happiness. And because I see happiness and love as synonyms, because I see joy and love is the same phenomenon appearing in two different ways or appearing in, from two different perceptions. Love and joy, love and happiness are not really even two words in my heart and my mind. It's one word, love, happiness, or love, joy, or joy, love, because I feel like joy really should even come before love because our, I think our experience and our understanding of joy is a much healthier understanding and appreciation than the one we often have around love, all right? And so to be love or to be really, just to be and exist at all is to love because to be, to exist at all is to be life itself. Life is love ultimately when you feel into it, right? So life felt is love. And so to live is really to love. And the whole point and purpose of life 
is to love and to be love and to even say receive love, but it's really to be love, right? So in some ways, I would argue love is even greater than life because love gives life meaning, right? With love without life makes life somewhat meaningless. I mean, I've experienced that. You've probably experienced that, that when you have life, but you don't have love, life can feel meaningless and pointless and purposeless and not have a whole lot of value. And the second you have love, even if you don't have a whole lot of life left, you feel this deep, meaningful, uh, lasting and abiding joy and happiness that's impossible to express and uh, is fulfilling in and of itself, right? So life really is the opportunity and love is that opportunity realized. Life is uh, the flower and uh, love is the fruit. Love is the fragrance of that flower, right? So that's what I wanted to share with you today. You know, if I were to boil it all down, I would say the most important thing for me to share is that First of all, love is happiness, okay? When you're happy, you're easier to get along with, you're loving already. When you're happy, you feel loved already. Also, when you're happy, not only are other people easier to get along with, but you're easier to get along with. Not only do they feel loved, but you feel loved just by virtue of you being happy, right? And so the challenge, of course, is not to create love, achieve love, accomplish love, acquire love. It's to simply acknowledge, recognize, and realize that you ultimately are love. You can do that best not through a whole lot of thoughts and words, although they do help and they point us in the right direction. It's by spending more time feeling into the faceless, formless presence of love within you already. And so right now, if you want, you can feel into your hands and into your feet, to any area of your body. You feel a vibrating energy there, right? So it just feels at first like barely anything. It's life. It's life force. It's life intelligence. That vibrating energy, that pulsating energy, that peaceful aliveness that you feel when you feel into your body is love. We'll call it life, right? That love, that life is also the same life and same love that's in everybody and everything else that is everybody and everything else. And that life and that love is always and eternally and infinitely available as an experience to you or me or anyone else regardless of whether or not we have a lover, right? So we can experience love without a lover, whether or not we have a partner. We can experience that whether we're in a crowd or whether we're all alone. The more that you experience and feel into that experience of peaceful aliveness that I call happiness and also call love, the more attractive and magnetic we all become. We know that, we experience that. When you are totally, truly in love with yourself and having a great day and really feeling yourself, is there any better feeling in the world? And do you not notice how many other people recognize and respond to that in kind? Maybe not everyone, but certainly you aren't even noticing or paying much attention to people that don't, right? And so I think there are lots of ways to improve upon the world, I suppose. I'm not sure the world needs improved upon. I do know that when I feel love, I am much more loving. When I feel loving, I tend to find I'm happier. When I'm happier, I am more loving. And when I'm happier, I'm also much more easy to love. And so my encouragement, I guess, to today to all of you and certainly to myself is to just explore this idea about love. What is love? What does it mean really? You know, if you think about all the conversations and challenges and difficult sort of experiences you've had with other people or with yourself, I think you'll discover that most of them boil down to the ways in which we define and describe what love is. True love can't be defined, can't be described. We only limit it that way. It can only be experienced, right? And so the way to experience love is to feel into your own, we'll call it body, but it goes beyond that. It's just to become aware of your own presence, your own awareness, your own consciousness. It's what being aware of awareness is, being conscious of consciousness is. The more consistently you do that for its own sake, for joy's sake alone, right? So it's sort of like spending time with your mom or your brother or your good friend. You do it for its own sake, not to get something from that experience, from that person, um, not for some future reward, not for some future meaning and purpose. You do it for its own sake, for joy's sake alone. And you discover that as you do it, you enjoy it more and more. And as you do it and enjoy it more and more, it's easier to do more and more. And then before long, you become more and more contagious with this love and this peace and this happiness. And then without saying a whole lot, doing a whole lot, even thinking a whole lot, you're tapped in, tuned in, turned on to this all-absorbing, all-consuming energy that is yourself. Thank you today so much. I'm so grateful and appreciative that you shared time with me today and give me an opportunity just to share my thoughts and my experience. And I love to take questions 
if there are any questions uh, that folks have. Well, there's lots of questions. Thank you so much for, for sharing all this wisdom. So I'll begin with a, just a comment from uh, Malaya, right? Uh, I just wanted to say your consciousness is so deep. Thank you for reminding us love is not to be searched outside of us. We can be the love that we already are. Oh, love that. Oh, so good. Thank you, Malaya. So here's a question from uh, Lulia. Um, how do you go about being love? I think many of us understand the concept but are unclear about how to be love in a world that challenges you every day. Oh, it's such a great question. Gosh, that's a probably 15 more books. Um, <laughs> um, I would say, you know, so, so for me, it's a number of things. It's um, first of all, prioritizing love above everything else. And um, second, it's also not becoming attached to the form that love takes, right? Um, true love is formless, right? And so one day it takes the form of friendship. Another day it takes the form of a romantic encounter. Uh, maybe the next day it takes the form of uh, donation uh, money. It could be donating blood. Um, but I would say that not to be attached to the form, but instead to um, tap into, tune into, turn onto this experience of peaceful aliveness in your body. And it's a good place to start. It's just notice how much peace, love, and joy exist inside of you already, okay? So at first it doesn't feel like much, but there is something that is hanging the earth on nothing, okay? And it's at the same time that it's hanging the earth, which is just a big rock, on nothing, it's rotating it on this axis, okay? And as it rotates on its axis in a very wobbly fashion, it revolves it around this super hot star. And that super hot star is, has been shining for as long as we, no, it's going to continue shining for as long as we can possibly imagine. And it shines and it keeps us at just a distance to not freeze us and to not burn us up, right? And that same, we'll call it life intelligence, universal intelligence, also is beating your heart and breathing your lungs and allows your brain to orchestrate it all. It grows the grass and it allows the rain to fall. And it's been doing it for as long as we know. That love, if it's not love, what is it? That infinite intelligence is also within you and within me. And I would argue that it is us, it is you, and it is me. To feel into that experience in a moment-to-moment -moment basis for its own sake, for joy's sake alone. And to trust that whatever intelligence it is that's hanging the earth on nothing, rotating on its axis, revolving around the sun, has been doing it forever, is also taking care of you and your life. And it's been doing that forever. That's how we're even having this conversation today. So if you can kind of feel into the presence of that, sometimes I call it God. I don't know what God means, and that's why I like using that term. I feel into that life, that non-physical energy inside my hands and my feet. Sometimes you are able to graduate from that, and you can feel into the peaceful aliveness inside you. Sometimes you even graduate from that and just become aware that you're aware. It's probably the highest possible way to describe it. It's just noticing that you're aware, full stop. It's not noticing what you're aware of. It's noticing that you're aware, right? So noticing that you're aware, that you're alive. Stop there. You can breathe in the stomach or not. Breathe through the nose. And when you notice thoughts, you just let them go. You don't judge them. You're not trying to change or fix any of it. But as you feel into that experience of peaceful aliveness consistently, I call it practice in the presence of God. That's what we call it in Christian mysticism. And Advaita, uh, you might call it self-inquiry. It's the same experience of just noticing or being aware of the I am that you are, that you are, that I am. Just that alone already is being love. You're being love all the time. It's just bringing awareness to the fact that you are love all the time. So as you practice this more and more, you'll turn what I call maybe a blind eye to the world, to your circumstances and conditions for long enough that you become, that this new experience of loving awareness becomes your reality. It feels much more real to you than whatever is coming to you or from you, uh, to you and at you from the news, from media, from friends and from family members. It becomes more of a sort of resting place. You're always consistently resting in and as this loving awareness, this God, this happiness, this peaceful aliveness that you are. You're just always wanting to rest in and as that as you go about your day. And so the idea is to never give all of your attention away to anybody or anything else, to always keep part of your attention inside yourself as the self, as the self, resting in and as God, right? In this loving awareness. It's not thinking, it's not doing, 
It's not fixing, it's not changing, it's not judging. It's just resting in and as that. And it's trusting that to, and trusting in that in such a way that you become sort of more and more of a transparency for what wants to come through in the moment, right? So it's easy. And I think the challenge with writing a book on love of all things, my goodness, or on happiness or on any of these things is that, you, you know, we all use a lot of words and they all sound okay. Some of them sound better than others. But ultimately what we're really wanting to do is we're wanting to simply practice the presence of love inside ourselves, that formless love as consistently as possible for its own sake, and then let it show up in whatever way it does. Sometimes it shows up as words, often it doesn't show up as any words, it's just stillness and silence. And we all know this experience of being around someone, they don't say a whole lot or do a whole lot, and yet we feel peace or we feel suddenly not only loved, but we feel loving and not only towards them, but towards everyone else too. Right? So we're just wanting to be more and more of that. We're wanting to stand sort of firm in this thoughtless word, this resting place of love, even as we Swiffer or vacuum, do the laundry, do data entry, and do it for its own sake, not to get something out of it. And then, because your motive is pure, you'll find that situations and people and opportunities begin to shift in ways that seem and feel a lot more loving, loving and cooperative and collaborative. Um, so yeah, I hope that answers the question a little longer winter than I was attending uh, originally, but. <clears throat> yeah, before we, we were live, we, we, you and I were talking about uh, simplifying, uh, like almost spiritual practice being more about simplifying that, than necessarily adding things. Yes, yes. Um, so uh, there's a question from Angela. She writes, hello, Rob. So what's the thing that makes our hearts beating so fast when we see someone that we like? Oh, I love that. It's love, right? I mean. It's just love. I mean, look, there are there are lots of other things we can talk about there too, right? We can talk about chemistry, right? So we can talk about um, biology, we can talk about chemistry, we can talk about evolutionary psychology, right? So oftentimes, and this is a great uh, question here because it helps us to introduce a little discernment here. So love often is lusty, but love is not lust, right? Love can include lust and it can include those, um, those heart palpitations you get, it includes that, it allows for all of that, right? Um, it's like the sky. It's all welcoming. It's all embracing. It's all accepting. And love doesn't equate to, doesn't equal lust. Love is exciting often, but it doesn't equal or equate to excitement. Love is often full of anticipation, but it doesn't equal or equate to anticipation. Love is not a thought, emotion, perception, or sensation. Love is what exists underneath, so to speak, between, above, below, and beyond all thoughts, all emotions, all perceptions, all sensations, all experiences, all conditions and circumstances. That's an important recognition to have because if you don't have, if you don't remember that, you'll find that you only think you're feeling love or in love or feeling loving when you're having some kind of physiological or biological or physical response. And um, that is um, understandable but it's one of the greatest mistakes and errors that we make in this life is that we assume that unless we're feeling something emotional, we're not feeling love. And would argue that love is not something, again, that comes and visits for a while and then leaves. It's always there underneath all of that. It includes all of it, but it's underneath all of that. You can kind of, th I think of it kind of as the, well, it's in Asian traditions to talk about the movie screen, right? So you're watching a movie and all kinds of characters and images do all kinds of things on this on the screen. Some of them are fun and exciting. Some of them are scary. Some of them are sexy. And we get so caught up in the movie that we forget the screen. And then we mistake sort of this movie um, for the screen. In other words, the screen, which is behind all the images, that thoughtless, wordless, faceless, formless, we'll call it in this case, um, awareness of everything that happens on the screen is itself already love because it's already all welcoming, all embracing, all accepting of whatever shows up or appears on the screen. And yet it's not the screen, right? So, so the challenge with most of us is that with love, we fall in love with the images that, that's sure, we think we fall in love with the images that appear on the screen, not realizing the entire time that we essentially are the screen itself. And so everything that we experience and accept um, or everything that we experience in general is already at some level accepted and welcomed to our life. And so I don't know if that provides a little additional uh, context and information around that, but it's a great question because we often think of love as an emotional state when really 
It's not a state of mood. It's not a state of emotion. It's not a state of relationship. It's a state of being. It's our inherent, innate, natural state of being. It's the one that we always are, but aren't always aware of. I like how you, um, uh, in, you know, there's a lot of traditions that would seemingly like negate uh, that kind of, uh, that form of love. And you, you say, well, it's, it is an expression of love, but it's also, it isn't also the, the, uh, the kind of core of love that we're talking about. There's, uh -huh. It's contained within it almost, I guess. You, you just know that's absolutely beautiful. I think in my life, I've suffered the most when I've become attached to the form or the face that love shows up on. When I've let go of that and come back to realizing and recognizing that love is formless and that it can appear in any or every form and in any and every face, and yet it can never completely contain that love. It doesn't, it's just an expression to your point of that love. Then I find that my suffering is reduced, if not eliminated entirely, because now love isn't something that can, I could have ever bottled or ever lost and then found. It's something that's always exist in and as in and as the self, this true self that we ultimately are. And it's something you can experience and do experience all day, every day. And the only question is, where are you focused? Where is your attention? Where is your awareness? Is it on the form or is it on the formless, um, at the formless level? So here's a question that uh, kind of touches on form, but it's an interesting one. It's from Tanya. Um, can we give someone a sense of value and self-worth who has received a lot of bad messaging growing up, etc.? So are we able to give that to somebody? Can we quote, this may be a separate question, but can we save someone that we are entering a relationship with? Oh, boy, I've been down that path. <laughs> That's spoken like someone who um, has... Um experience the challenges with that and also the desire with that um so um i'll share my so my experience is that um a couple of things i'll say first of all um it's very understandable and human to feel that way and to want that okay um second um i do agree with byron katie here as with most things that um we don't ever save anyone else <laughs> um uh, we can uh, do lots of things and then later find that they're better or worse off and then say that we did or did not save them, but that's all a story. Um, at the end of the day, um, nobody really needs saved um, because nobody is really lost. Um, and if they're lost, they're lost in life. And if they're lost in life, they're lost in love. Um, so it may you know, look like uh, lots of undesirable, uncomfortable circumstances and conditions on the surface. And this is why you see things like in scripture, like judge not uh, based on appearances, because um, while it also feels very real and very scary, ultimately we're all resting in and as the lap of love, right? So there is no, um, there is no escaping that. There is no escaping that. Now you can escape. Um, you can feel that you're escaping that by having an experience that suggests something otherwise. You can certainly suffer, and you can certainly be in pain, and other people can be in pain and suffer too. Um, but that's all ultimately very illusory. The same way a dream is. So great metaphor is, we all go to sleep at night, we fall asleep, and in our sleep, we occasionally dream and have nightmares, and. In those nightmares, I mean, all kinds of things happen. We go all over the world and scary stuff that couldn't even happen or we don't think could happen in this real life happens in our dream state. And we freak out and we lose our minds. And then at some point, the dream often gets, or the nightmare gets so bad that we're woken up from it. And as we're woken up from it, we come to realize that we are safe all along. We are always tucked in safely and securely to our own bed, perhaps in our comforter, you know, and nothing was really at risk. So awakening journey, spiritual awakening journey is very much like that, right? It is. I mean, if you look back even in your own life, and none of us have to be enlightened uh, in a traditional way to know that. Like, if you look at anything in your life, think back to all the scenarios that you've suffered, experiences you've suffered in your life, and how many of them never actually happened. I mean, that in of itself, or the things that did happen that weren't nearly as bad as you thought they were. I mean, there was a time in my life when I lost a corporate job, and um, I had two beautiful German cars and a house, an apartment, and I lost all these things, and I thought, that's going to be the end of me if that all those things happened. You know, that's how I felt before. Then it happened. I was like, this is the worst it gets. It feels pretty good. I feel pretty free, which is very strange, right? So I say all that to say, in the end, we don't save anyone else, okay? We, we can make up a story about when we save somebody else. Second, nobody needs saved. We're all resting in and as God already. Third, we can often imagine or picture something different from that. And we can suffer that. We can suffer our stories and thoughts about that, which could be scary um, for sure. Uh, fourth, if we want to be of true help and assistance to somebody else, we want to be beyond needing help and assistance ourselves. So in other words, 
the best thing you can possibly do for someone who is suffering is access those thoughts, words, feelings, experiences that they're having trouble accessing on their own. So a person who is drowning does not need you to be drowning too. Okay, that's going to be the le least helpful thing you can do. A person who is experiencing depression or sadness, uh, which is lighter than depression, or anxiety or stress does not need your stress and anxiety and depression on top of it. They need you, if anything, to feel into and to stay firm and stand in your knowingness that all is well, that all is always well. And you have to know that so deeply and so fully within yourself. And you have to know it despite and regardless how things turn out based on appearances, right? So the real challenge then is to find that place within yourself where there are no problems. And so, for, so therefore you need no solutions, where there is no illness and therefore you need no healing or they need no healing, where there is no conflict. And so, and there's only peace, right? You want to, you want to stand firm in that place consistently when you're interacting with them, when you, as often as you can, and you don't want to fake it. You really want to be genuine and authentic about it. So this is why their work is so valuable. But if you can do that consistently as you connect with them, then you'll still meet them with your words, right? So you meet them with their words, reflect back what you heard. If I heard you correctly, Jacob, I heard you say X, Y, and Z, right? And then you validate, normalize, empathize. I, if I were in your shoes, I'd be feeling exactly the way you are. Meaning if you had their childhood, if you had their upbringing, if you had your thoughts in your head and you had their experiences, you'd be feeling and behaving and speaking exactly the way they are. That is not a spiritual platitude. That is an actual fact. That is a literal truth, right? Validate, normalize, empathize. And then, but in the entire time, returning again and again to that place of peaceful aliveness or perfect peace within yourself, we'll call it loving awareness within yourself. If you can do that consistently, that will be much more helpful than anything you can possibly think, say, or do. And still, your most inspired, creative thoughts, words, and actions will come from that place of loving awareness and peaceful aliveness from God, essentially. Right? So um, hopefully it's helpful. Um, yeah. Yeah, one thing that I thought of when you're describing that too, I mean, there can be so many motivations if we're trying to save somebody or like we're not. And one of them is often just that we, we um, want to be needed. Like we want to, so there's a lot of hooks that we might have, not necessarily coming from a place. So. Jacob, that's so good. I just love that so much, uh, brother. Um, you know, funny you should say this because I, I mean, the only reason I speak about any of these things is because I was the poster boy for all of these challenges, still probably am, right? So, and um, the one thing I discovered to your point is that when I suffered most profoundly from this savior complex, right, um, was when I was really struggling to find my own purpose in life. And so I wanted to be needed. I wanted to be valued and I wanted to have a purpose. And these um, seemingly, although none of them were broken folks that would show up in my life that would try to spend too much time, energy and effort saving, I realized later um, it was a great benefit to me because it woke me up to this flawed premise or misperception, misconception that I had, which was that um, I was there for their benefit. They were there just as much for my benefit. And also I needed to come to a recognition realization that even with my greatest effort and my greatest intelligence, I could never ever save anyone else, right? So for me, my big trigger was suicide, right? I experienced my own suicidal um, and my own suicidal experience. And so anyone who would show up that was suicidal, I would really struggle with. And I would be really, I would do anything. And I would feel like I was trying harder than even they were to save themselves. And I would just like, and I realized over time that first of all, there were so many illusions built in there. One was that life was infinite or, or, or ephemeral, that that wasn't true. It was like the physical life probably is, but as I dove deeper into most every spiritual religious tradition and dove deeper into meditation, you do come to recognize that life is eternal. Life just continues to life. There's right. That recognition for me was huge. Second, I also realized and remembered that when I was suffering so much that um, one, other people's suffering did not help me. They often would just project their suffering onto me, which only increased my suffering. Third, I realized that um, even suicide, for instance, um, has its role and its place in the world. And I'm not encouraging anyone ever to commit suicide, but I will say that I've lost a few friends to suicide and those folks were in so much pain in their mind, their body, that I felt relief for them just knowing that they thought they had found a solution. Not that they had actually found a permanent solution to it because suicide is never a permanent solution to, um, it's, a, it's a temporary solution to a very permanent 
problem, so to speak, right? It doesn't solve the ultimate problem. Like a person that wants to commit suicide, for instance, or is very depressed, thinks they're trying to escape the body, but really trying to escape the mind, right? And there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a misidentification there. So in any case, the point is save yourself, first and foremost, be the change that you want to see in the other, be a living, shining example of what you want them to think and be and do. And then know that all is well, no matter what happens, and no matter what appearances testify to the contrary. Thank you. Um, here's a question from Sabina. She writes, uh, Gandhi said, and I think be the change, isn't that from Gandhi? I'm not yes, sure. yes, definitely. Uh, she says, Gandhi said that love is the strongest force the world possesses, and yet it is the humblest imaginable. His Highness the, the Dalai Lama would undoubtedly agree how can we use this force to stop us from killing each other in war or at home? It seems to me that people or cultures, uh, and she references Bhutan or Tibet, that quote, run on love, so often get taken advantage of. Mm, it's powerful, really powerful. So it's a great point, right? Um, there's a great story, and maybe most of the folks here maybe have heard it, about uh, the snake uh, that was, uh, you know, in the wild. And, um, you know, kids and other people come by and throw rocks at the snake, you know. But the snake was studying under a spiritual teacher. So the snake was meditating. The snake was becoming more loving all the time. And so at some point, you know, um, the uh, snake bumps up against the spiritual teacher and says, you know, teacher, teacher, I have to, you know, say that this meditation stuff has been great. You know, this spiritual journey has been fantastic. I'm just feeling more loving every day. The only problem is uh, these kids and uh, even adults are throwing rocks and they're really abusing me. I'm all beat up. You know, spiritual teacher looked at the snake and said, oh, snake, you're really bloody. You're all beat up and you don't look good. You're right. He said, well, what's going on here? And he said, well, I, you told me to be loving, to be loving towards all people. And so I've been doing that. And the teacher said, well, yes, be loving, you know, to everyone all the time. And don't forget, it's okay occasionally to hiss kind of thing. <laughs> okay, right? So, so to that, I say boundary setting, right? We're just talking about boundaries. So um, being loving, being loved does not mean being a doormat, okay? When you are completely convinced and know that you are love, you no longer people please in the way that you did before. And you no longer are a doormat in the way you were before because your love is no longer on the line. Your self-love is no longer on the line. Your happiness is no longer on the line. Your peace is no, no longer on the line. You found the source of it yourself and you are the source of it yourself. And so you can extend it and you can extend it and express it from an infinite source. So wherever that love came from, there's always more from where it came from. And what that means is that in the same breath, you can also say no. And you can say no with just as much love as you say yes, right? You can say not today with just as much love as you say, um, you know, yes, right now and here and now. You can also, um, in the same breath, defend yourself. You know, you can defend yourself, right? Now, I would argue that, and this is where it gets slippery and you know, um, for, for, for me, um, it's always been easier for me to defend other people than it has been for myself. Um, but I will say that my experience has been that when I'm truly, deeply living from a place of love, not from a place of pseudo love, not from a place of like, I need to love the world. Um, and meanwhile, I'm sitting here feeling very unloved or feeling not valued or not feeling needed. That when I am resting in and as the source of love, folks can occasionally, sure, take advantage of you. They might steal a little bit of money. Doesn't mean you don't lock your doors, right? So you still lock your door and love people. You can still, you know, protect your space. And, and I, I will say that for me, when I rest in and as love and as loving awareness as consistently as possible for its own sake, I find that that in of itself changes circumstances and people in ways that I could not possibly do on my own or through my own effort or might or power. And I don't find myself needing to defend or explain or over-explain or react at all to what folks are doing. Now, again, it does come down to like, if it's a life-threatening experience, that's all, that's all kind of situation. Generally what happens is if you're existing and in and as love as consistently as humanly possible, you know, whatever the need is in the moment generally it takes care of itself. So often people will just quite frankly just leave you alone or you might find yourself defending yourself. I can't tell you, I don't know what will happen. I don't even know what I would do in that particular circumstance situation. But I would say the illusion that we want to see through a little bit is if you think if, if this death thing is a big deal, right? And so much of our ideas about love are interrelated um, to our ideas about death. And if you 
feel that or believe that life is finite and that life is ephemeral and that your only opportunity um, to be alive in order to love, in order to experience happiness is um, in this physical body, in the way this physical body is now, then you're gonna find yourself, I think, consistently challenged um, by the world's suffering in ways that you don't need to be. Like, I love what Abraham Hicks said. They said kind of, well, he said, you know, if you had any idea how blissful the quote unquote death experience is, you would never use death as punishment for the people who you feel do so much wrong in the world, right? And so in other words, I'll just say that, and I think most of us who have done any meditation or um, certainly if you've done a lot of meditation, um, there's probably very little, if anything, that is more blissful or joyful or uplifting or inspiring or just feels better than forgetting everybody and everything in the world and forgetting yourself entirely, forgetting all your fears and all your desires and simply just resting in it as this timeless, mindless, spaceless presence that you are. And as far as I know, the death experience is that magnified without the struggle and strain and, and so, so, so yes, I would, um, it's a great question. Ultimately, I think that I encourage people to love for loving sake alone and to spend as much time living in and as love as consistently as possible. And then let that dictate what you do and say and how you show up in the moment. And you'll find that over time, more and more, you're taking advantage of less and less because you set better boundaries because you're no longer making your love or your experience of love or your love life dependent or contingent on what anybody or anybody or anything else is doing in the world or showing up as. I don't know if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. I was just reminded we were, we were talking before, again, before we were live, we were talking about Matt Kahn a little bit. I remember him, him saying um, this thing about um, if you can't really truly say yes, unless you give yourself permission to say no. And so sometimes our, Yeses and our nos are both expressions of. Oh my gosh, this is Jacob. I love you and I love that so much. I love Matt so much. Yes, like I sometimes think of it in a very similar way. I'll often say, when saying no becomes impossible, saying yes becomes meaningless, right? Saying yes becomes meaningless. So um, we want to keep that in mind. Um, love isn't dependent on form. And isn't dependent on you or doesn't need you to say yes to anything or everything. In fact, I would argue that um, Warren Buffett once said, the difference between successful people and extraordinarily successful people is that extraordinarily successful people say no to almost everything. I'd argue that's also largely true or true in lots of ways with happy people or extraordinarily happy people and also loving people. Like you can say no to a lot of things and, and you're not saying no to the person, right? I can say, no, I'm unfortunately I can't give you that $10 million today. And I can still say yes to the person. I can say, Hey, there's lots of other ways I want to support and help you. You know, you can say no to letting someone take advantage of you. And yet at the same time, give a very loud life affirming yes to who and what they are as their essence. So I'd say this, that's the greater point. When folks talk about like seeing the Christ in someone, seeing the Buddha in someone, I used to always struggle with that. I'm like, I don't see a little Christ in there. Where's a the little Buddha at? You know, I never, it's so literal for me. And for me, that means filling into the Christ mind or the Buddha mind, um, another way of saying it, filling into the peaceful aliveness in my own body is consistently impossible, recognizing that's also at the heart and center of everyone else too. In fact, that is what everyone else essentially is. When you do that, you don't quote unquote bear fault with or false witness against people. And that's the highest way to love someone is to feel into that oneness that we all experience, but feel into it within your own body. When you do that, a lot of these um, issues around boundary setting and expectation management sort of clear up on their own because suddenly you're like oh wait i can you know say no to this particular form but i don't say no to this formless essence of who they are and i'm going to do everything i can to support them while they're living in this form but i'm also not going to do it in a way that i take on undue suffering or pain right so self-betrayal is still betrayal self-sacrifice is still sacrifice it's not better in fact i'd argue it's sometimes the greatest sacrifice or the greatest betrayal so we want to be careful of that like, I'm going to be so loving that I'm going to love people back to wholeness while I secretly empty myself or, right? So, yeah. Thank you so much. <clears throat> and thank you for um, bringing all of your wisdom and uh, an insight to us today. 
and um, <clears throat> I, I get, I very much get the sense that you are like that kind of rain cloud you described. You're just sharing a lot of like good vibes and good energy. So it's been just a pleasure to, to meet you and uh, be able to host you. And um, yeah, I want to just also uh, remind everybody, uh, you can purchase Robert Mack's uh, books, including his new one, Love from the Inside Out, from Banyan.com, B-A-N-Y-E-N.com. And you can learn more about his work at coachrobmack.com. That's coach, R-O-B-M-A-C-K.com. So on behalf of Banyan Books and myself, uh, thank you so much. And thanks for everyone for coming out today. Thank you so much, Jacob. I appreciate you so much. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for joining us for Branches of Wisdom, a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound, Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970. Our podcast producer is Jacob Steele. The show is edited by Abdo Habani. Watch all our conversations on YouTube by searching for Banyan Books or listen on your favorite podcast platform. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews and comments. We love to hear from you. For all our live events, books, and more, visit us at banyan.com.